Welcome to Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion and culture with the personalities that shape it. My guest this week is Matt Rennick. Matt wears many hats. He's a photographer, a director, an editor, an author. Look, I could go on. Basically, picture all the cool things you want to have as a career and know that that's Matt. Matt and I spoke about his recently released book, A Man and His Watch, and how it all came together. We talk about traveling the world, hunting through secret Swiss archives, and why so many people care about, well, watches. It's a great combo. Let's dive in. Mr. Matt Rennick. Did I pronounce your last name correct? Well, it's a, di- it's a difficult last name. It's, you kind of just bring it all together. It's like Haranic. Yeah. Haranic. Whatever. It's like <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm in the airport and you hear um, uh, paging Mr. Matthew. I know it's always me. <laughs> They're like, mm, I got to figure out how to pronounce this. I'm always surprised when people nail it and I get so excited, but it's Hranic. Okay. Fine. So I'm trying to think. I first met you when I worked at the Armory, maybe, or I yeah. might have met you at an event before, but it was one of those kind of like, hey, hellos, and you don't really see him again. Yeah, um, that was probably Armory. You know, I'm kind of a men's store groupie. <laughs> men's store groupie? I mean, I do love retail. Yeah. And I like the people normally surrounded by the retail of the shops that I like. So it's fair. It's it's funny. Like I don't always buy, and I don't really buy a lot. I mean, my wife would argue that, but I was going to say uh, you get a lot of vintage. I love I've I love vintage stuff. I love free stuff, (laughs) which is really good. But I think you know you get to the point in your life as you get. I think men should get to a certain age where they figure out the uniform, right? Right. And I was a big vintage collector, military. Harris Tweed, blah 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 blah. Yeah, and then once all these great men's stores started popping up, I mean, I would even include J. Crew in a big part of that. Like, and then the sartorial art started really—I don't know—people started thinking it was important and paying attention to it in that man space. Mm-hmm. And with like you know Neapolitan English, all those right notes. Then I just went apeshit. I found my stride, particularly shops like you know Armory and Drake's. I just love that stuff. Yeah. Because it's basically just the more adult version of what I wore in high school. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because I was just a preppy, you know, everything had a Lacoste on it. You know? Yeah. So I just, um, I think I've hit my stride with what I feel comfortable with, which right is on. basically, you know, two things removed from my high school wardrobe. I mean, you know? well, you look good. Well, you, thank you. You got the nice, you know, Donegal brown tweed jacket on. Thank and you. It's It's very, very nice. So- one of the big reasons why you're on, a um, couple things. One, get to know you a little bit. But two, you just finished a book, which is pretty incredible. I believe it's, a, can, correct me if I'm wrong, A Man and His Watch. A Man and His Watch that is being published by Artisan here in New York. Shout out Artisan. I love Artisan. And uh, November 1st. So it took about a year and a half really stemmed to stern once we got the thumbs up for the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was an awesome journey, particularly for a guy who, like myself, who loves watches and being around watches. And so this book is about the stories behind the watches. Like this book is driven by the stories okay. of, you know, so it's not just, sure, there's some luxurious watches in there, but it's very valuable watches, but it's really about the value of the story for me that drove the interest in the object in the book. Right, right. Yeah, because it's not a catalog. I'll be, be very clear. There are people who have made, this is not calling anyone out, but there are people who have more or less just cataloged people's watches. And this is not. 
in yeah. any way. There's a lot of story to this. There's a lot of personification. There's, I mean, it's it's very beautiful. Thank you. I think that what I saw that was out there was either these big monographs celebrating a brand or one specific watch, like these big, giant, glossy, pornographic, <laughs> you know, I mean, they're amazing, right? right? But I never really saw a book that was being put together in terms of the stories behind the watches and not really paying attention to the brands specifically or the style or the price or whatever. It just was like the person in the story. Mm -hmm. And that's how I pitched it to Artisan, which primarily makes cookbooks, like some of the most beautiful cookbooks, like they did all of Thomas Keller's cookbooks. And they just I just loved them on the level of how beautiful, they made such beautiful books. Right. right? So they said, yeah, let's do this. After they had already turned down a watch book, they were like, why do we want to do a watch book? And then, as I said, well, this is not about a book of watches as much as it's about a book of stories about watches. Mm -hmm. And they're like, hmm, okay, we could do that one. So then we started reaching out. And for me, the first watch that really set the tone for the book was I wanted Paul Newman's Daytona, the big red, not the one that's this kind of new discovery that's going to auction soon, yeah. the original Paul Newman, Paul Newman dial. Yeah, the exotic away, dial. The exotic dial that he gave away to Nell's boyfriend. No one knew where that was. Yeah. But I was introduced to Clea Newman, who is the youngest daughter, and she had on her wrist the big red Daytona. And I had done some volunteer work for um, the camps, the kids' camps, that the Newman's kid camps, serious fun. Right. And so I begged for a, a more intimate introduction to her. And then after a lot of dancing, you know, back and forth. <laughs> okay. She said, come on up and photograph the watch. And I just was like, in, beyond myself. So this, my photographer and, and very, very good friend, Stephen Lewis, who's working out, who did the pictures for the book, we jumped in the car, we raced up to Connecticut because I didn't want her to say no. <laughs> right so i literally hung up the phone and we drove to connecticut and we guys went let's to, go <laughs> let's go like pack your shit and let's go we got up there and she was like oh you guys are here and we said sure and then she took the watch off and handed it to me i mean that watch wait she, she was wearing it she wears it every single day holy cow yeah okay and sure. that watch you know i didn't realize that this watch had this inscription like i'm kind of like i don't know sometimes a little retarded like that like i was like Everyone knew about this inscription but me, but I turn it over and it says, you know, that drive slowly, Joanne. Right. And it like just gives you chills, right? And that watch is still filled with his DNA. Like you look at that watch and it's filthy and beat up and you know that that's Paul Newman's in that watch. So we shot the watch. Of course, I put the watch on and like wore it for 10 minutes. And then, um, then the pacing of the book just started, and we started reaching out to people that we knew had interesting stories, some celebrities, some not celebrities, friends, um, people in the watch world, brand stories, like mm -hmm. Cartier and Rolex and Tudor, uh, Omega was a big one for me in terms of the moon watches. And then it just gained momentum, and you know, people were incredibly generous and kind and thoughtful with their stories and also with their watches. like. I mean, Sly Stallone sent his, he has this beautiful watch in the book that kind of marked success in his life after he finished Rocky, this gold Tiffany branded Submariner. Mm -hmm. He dropped it in FedEx and sent it to me. 
what? Yeah, like I was just like his assistant was like, "Okay, so Sly's going to send the watch. What's the what's the address? It's going to the tracking effect. number." And you're like, "Holy <laughs> shit, you get the watch and you're like, "Wow." So there's this kind of fraternity of trust which is really interesting I think in the watch world, right? Right. And then you reach out to people like Mario Andretti and I'm sure if I was like, "Oh, I'm doing an interview on, you know, uh, you know, great, you know, the world's best race car drivers." I'm sure I was like, "Click or get the publicist." But he picked, I was like, I'm interested in Mario's watches. I know he's a big watch collector. He has this famous Hoyer that Jack Hoyer gave him when he was racing for Ferrari. Mm-hmm. And he was like, picks up the phone. He said, Wait, well, he answers? Assistant hands over the phone. Okay. Mario Andretti gets on the phone and says, well, why don't you guys just drive out to my house in Pennsylvania? And again, we're sure. like, <laughs> and we're there. And it's just the generosity and the, just the level of participation in terms of storytelling with these guys was just amazing. Right. Right. Well, so I want to jump back just a hair because not, I don't know if people just wake up and choose to write a book about watches, but you have a very interesting backstory, which I want to get into a little bit of where you came from. And also you're a bit of this Renaissance man. And, you know, I'll let you explain more of this, but when I'd first met you, I just thought, which is nothing wrong, but I thought you were a writer. You're a writer, you're editor, content ass traveler. And then I find out you've done this TV show, you're a photographer, you're a director. I mean, where did this begin? Um, I think it all began with, I didn't want to be a vet, which I'm sure my mom would have been really happy to say. Like her son As in veterinarian? A, yeah, like your son was a doctor. Okay. <laughs> you know, like, this is my son, he's a doctor. I went to school, I always wanted to be a photographer. So I went to school and studied photography at, at RIT, and then I went and studied art history a little bit, and then I came to New York. And I was a photo assistant. I went through the ranks. And mm-hmm. then I started shooting. I started photographing. Um, and I wanted to be a fashion photographer because I wanted to hang around models. and that As one have, does. As one does. And that was very <laughs> short-lived. And then uh, it was just kind of the, it was kind of a golden age of magazines in the early 90s, right? You mm-hmm. had like wallpaper coming on the scene, House and Garden, Gourmet was in a, re- you know, it was like all this great stuff that was out there. And I started working a lot with wallpaper and house and garden in terms of like shooting a lot of interiors and design. And then that led to shooting a lot of travel Mm. and a lot of this thing that called lifestyle that came about. And then I was always the guy that was out there that would come back with more ideas. Like I just loved collecting content. I guess it's called content now, right? I just loved, I just loved finding all this new stuff. Yeah. And then fast forward, I started before the internet, when you needed 24 hours of content, no one knew how to fit me into that role. Oh. So they would say, like, mm, well, you're a photographer. We have editors to do that stuff. Like, right. And I was just like, okay. So I always keep these notes about, like, where I've been and what I did. And I always had this fantasy of, like, a TV show. You know, that someday this would be, like, some cable show of, like, you know, my travel experiences. When I was a kid, I used to pretend I had a cooking show. That I thought my mom, my mom probably thought it was like out of my mind. Like I'd have a fake TV audience and like I would talk to the audience and make like bologna sandwiches and stuff. Like I was obsessed <laughs> with television. Yeah. So, so I started writing this blog called The William Brown Project, which was basically kind of a diary of all this residual content and what I was doing. Who's and, William Brown? Well, it was kind of, William Brown was named after this farm that we have in upstate New York, which is a section of land that used to be this big 500-acre dairy farm called William Brown Farm. Oh, okay. And when I started writing the blog, I wanted to kind of remove it from my photography 
mm-hmm. online presence, my photog- the photography experience. So a lot of the cool stuff that, well, at least I thought it was cool, that was going on, I was kind of doing at the barn upstate. And I was like, maybe it's about this project, this William Brown project. Right, right. And if you dug deep enough, you found out it was me. <laughs> but it became this thing. And I also kind of dumbed down the imagery. I just wanted to kind of keep this diary of mm-hmm. what was going on. And then out of the blue, a production company out of St. Louis. Shout uh, out St. Louis. Shout, shout out St. Louis. No Coast. <laughs> no Coast Productions and uh, cool Fi- these guys quit Cool Fire. We're like, we think, this is a, we think this could be a TV show. And I was like, yeah, cool. Like, I always met, yeah. And they said, no, but we want you to host it. Oh, wow. And, and of course, that was like, what, you know, what do you want out of this? And they were like, no, 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 we'll come and we'll shoot a sizzle reel. So they did that. And it was basically a, the kind of point of view of the block, like a little sartorial arts, a little food, a little adventure, a little car, a little hooks and bullets, you know, and like this kind of hunting and fishing world, which was the most played down. And then they pitched it to Esquire um, when Esquire was looking for... Esquire now, TV. Esquire TV. Mm-hmm. So NBC Universal bought this station to develop for men, I guess, from 25 to 45. And then we got this series for, we ran six shows, which was great, which was basically an extension of all this stuff that I had been collecting on photo shoots for 20 years. Right. You know, like you go to shoot a country music star for like country people, (laughs) right? And you're in Nashville and you're in Nashville for three days, like waiting for, you know, this celebrity show up. And I would just hit the road and find like places like Imogene and Willie and, you know, this old NASCAR track and where's the best hot chicken? And then when they were saying, well, how do we develop the show? I was like, well, I already have the show. It's here. Oh, geez. And that's what we did. Yeah. And then Esquire fell flat on its face (laughs) and nobody (laughs) could find the show and no one understood that, you know, this demographic doesn't have Time Warner Cable and... Right. And then... The bureaucracy of networks and and the organization of it. It's just a very old business that is functioning... It's was functioning, at least at that time, on a very old model. And then when we were waiting to be picked up for season two, Traveler, Pilar Guzman, Yolanda Edwards, kind of took over the helm at Traveler. Mm-hmm. and Condé Nast Traveler. At Condé Nast Traveler. Sure. And then had a clean house. A deficit in that house cleaning was somebody to cover the watch market, which was a big part of the business. There's a big convention quote in Geneva with Richemond and there's Basel World and all this other stuff. And they were like, well, you're not doing anything right now, man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> hey, you, yeah, you've got some time on your hands, twiddling your thumbs, waiting for Esquire. Do you want to cover this stuff for us? And I was like, uh, yeah. I mean, and I was a kid in a candy shop, if you can imagine. So that's how it all started. Interesting. Yeah. And one of the things that, that, that kind of correlates through all this is it's not easy not only to do all the stuff that you did, but you really need a specific personality. And I remember when I met you, like I immediately saw it because you are this natural ambassador, charismatic, exciting individual that has a good way to educate me without making me feel stupid. Like when you're explaining, you know, I think when I met you, you had just gotten this thing off of eBay. And, and 
of course, you naturally start showing it to everyone in the room in this vintage tweet that you have, and you're explaining it to me. And I had no idea, and I was just kind of doing the nod, like, oh, okay, sure, I get it. But I was like, that guy is freaking cool. Like, and it was it was something that was so it's funny. Sp- annoying didn't come up. No. First. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It wasn't annoying because annoying would be sensing the ability that people don't want to hear about it. You immediately, I mean, you knew that everyone wanted to know about it, but people were a little bit too intimidated or shy to ask more. And I think like that's a really interesting thing, which maybe is one of the reasons why you're able to get some, so many of these people in this watch book, is there's this kind of natural hustle mentality of you that um, mm. is very difficult for people to build because some people do that and they come off really mean, obnoxious, and in their own world. And I would actually argue a lot of brilliant directors have this curse at mm-hmm. times. And so they need this like Rosetta Stone between them and the, the talent. And you don't need that. I, I never was somebody who thrived off tension. Like, right. I don't like when tension's in the room. I always preferred when everyone liked me. Right? <laughs> I, I need everyone to like me. Uh-huh. And, uh, and also, I, I, I think it comes from the familial experience as well. Like, I grew up in a big Italian family on my mother's side. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you had to be a bit of a showman and a hustler in that family. Like there was right. a lot of kids at the table. Like, you know, I had to perform like to get the extra meatball kind of situation. Like, so like that, all that kind of thing was really encouraged kind of growing up. Like everyone was encouraged to be, I don't know, a bit of a hustler and a bit of a showman and a bit of like a talker and, you know, explain what's going on. And I also felt that I got to a certain point in my life where I wasn't going to pretend anymore that I knew something I didn't know. There was some, there was some value in saying, no, I, don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. I, mm-hmm. I'm not going to pretend I know what's going on. And I think that was an interesting turning point in how I even talk to people about stuff and listen to people. And I often said, like, I'm not the most interesting guy, but I'm definitely the most interested guy. Like, oh. I'm, I'm definitely interested in a lot of things. And if and if you're an expert at something or if you're of knowledge of something, like I think in that, also in that family experience, you often learn just to put your head down and listen mm-hmm. and kind of learn from that. And I learned from that assisting as well. Like I was an assistant in New York to some pretty big photographers and I was in awe of them. And I just kind of just shut my mouth and listened and learned. And I think that idea of observation kind of opened me up to receive all that stuff. And right. I still do it as an adult now, you know. Interesting. So you're, you're at Condé Nast Traveler. They ask you to start writing about watches. Now, were you into watches? I mean, I it sounds like you were. I was always into watches. I was crazy into watches. Like, Where did that begin? I think my dad. My dad was crazy into the objects, mechanical. He was a sign painter and illustrator. Okay. But he loved watches. He loved cars. Like, there was all that kind of crossover with craft. You know, he loved, I mean, he loved bamboo fly rods and he was like a big country squire, like total like guy went to school and leave with, you know, went to work and like Levi's in a jean jacket because he was sign painter. Right. But had Italian tailors, Harris Tweed, you know, owned a Triumph TR3. You know, oh, wow. he was very, he was interesting. Is his name Steve McQueen? <laughs> his name is Ron Horanic. <laughs> um, but the, you know, and there was a lot of rub off to that. And I really admired him. So, and I was into all that stuff as well. Right. And, you know, the first watch I ever got, which is in the book, is this Sears Winnie the Pooh watch that my grandmother 
um, bought me, I think I was five or six. Classic grandma. Yeah. Well, my grandmother <laughs> only ever bought anything. Like, she was a Depression era, you know, first generation immigrant. Mm-hmm. And the American dream was buying everything out of the Sears catalog. Oh, yeah. And Sears had this trademark with Disney and specifically Wendy the Pooh. And I was obsessed with Wendy the Pooh. And the first watch she, the, word, the first watch she bought me is this Winnie the Pooh watch that's in the book. And my mom is who just has everything. It's like pack rat. All this emotional stuff is pack rat, right? <laughs> she had it in the inner jewelry box. Oh my God. And when I told her about the book, she was like, well, do you think this is interesting? And I was like, uh, the Winnie the Pooh watch from Grandma Anna? Yeah. And I think that started it off. And also, you know, for men of my father's generation, a watch was one of the most ex- you know, one of the only accepted pieces of jewelry. Right. Maybe it was a gold chain. Maybe it was a ring. But that was it, right? Mm-hmm. But the watch was a big symbol of who and what you were, right? Right. Like, and that period of time, I really paid attention to that. And I would look at ads in magazines. I mean, I loved watches. I loved it. So when I would go to Richmond uh, or go to Basel World and as an editor... I would walk in like giddy and silly and like laughing and like so excited. And they were like, wait, you're really excited about all this? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, let's show me more stuff, you know? Um, and meanwhile, there'd be some, you know, editor from another magazine who could give a crap about being there. Usually, yeah. usually a very young woman who'd rather be at like a jewelry show right. on their iPhone the whole time. <laughs> and here I am just like fetishizing over everything. So it was terribly exciting for me. So then you start meeting all these people in that world. And I just loved being around them because we shared this common interest, at least at that moment, which was watches. And then you get a lot of carryover, right? Like watch guys usually pay attention a little bit of how they dress or that's true. They like nice craft or they like cool cars. And um, there's a lot in common. Yeah. I, so looking through the book, I saw you had the JFK tank. Um, how did you get that? So I became fast friends with the archivist at Omega. Okay. He's a really great guy named Petros. And um, he was in charge of the entire archive of Omega. And they had a small little exhibition at the shop one day, and I was invited. And I met Petros in person, and I, I looked at all these watches, and I was like, holy cow, this JFK inaugural watch is so amazing. And I said, can I get this for the book? I'm, I'm writing this book. And they were, they were like, you can have whatever you want. Like, what do you want? Ugh. And I was like, really? And they was like, we have moon watches and prototypes and, of course, the JFK watch. And I had full access to anything we wanted. And they actually brought them to New York for us to shoot. Like, we didn't have to schlep to Geneva or anything like that. And it was just amazing, the generosity in that. And none of that, none of that would have been possible without the confidence and the generosity of brands like... Omega and guys like Petros who are just like excited and as excitable as you are in the project. Right. Because I don't know if a lot of people are just like, hey, could we dig into the archives and look at stuff? Yeah. The funniest archive story is I was in Geneva and Cartier said, we would love for you to come to the archive in Geneva and you could shoot whatever you want there. Because for me, it was the Santos, the original Santos. Right. And let me just piggyback on your story. Yeah. This is not something that watch specifically when you look at the the history of old swiss companies that have these archives it is very 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 rare that they will open it up 
to a journalist or someone like that. I, I think like they're, it's incredible that this happened to you. They're very, very guarded. It's yeah. a very conservative, old school business um, steeped in history and tradition. And they do not mess with that. I mean, yeah. they're Swiss. Right. Like it's a cultural thing. Right. And um, if all the watches were in Italy, I'm sure it'd be like, ah, yes, yeah, we come. <laughs> very nice. We have a Aperol Spritz. Very nice. Yeah. But, you know, Switzerland is like, they take that stuff very seriously, as they should, right? So the, the Cartier archives are in some, somewhere in Geneva. Okay. To this day, I don't know where. Because basically, we were, Steve and Lewis, the photographer, and I were in Geneva. Mm-hmm. We get a text that's like, we're going to meet you at this corner. This van will show up. Because I kept saying, like, what's the address? We'll just meet you there. We'll, right. What's the address? We'll just show up. Like, Geneva's not a big town. Like, no, no, no. We'll, a van will pick you up. Literally, a van will pick you up on this corner and bring you to undisclosed location. It was sort of like we were hooded and thrown in the van <laughs> and then brought to this very nondescript building that had like retinal scans and airlocks. And then all Whoa. of a sudden, it was a former private banking facility. And then all of a sudden, you're in the Cartier archive. Right. And, and then the world opens up to you. And the, what I find about archivists too is like, they just want to show you stuff. Like once you're in, they yeah. just want to show you. That's their life, right? Yeah, it seems like they don't get that much human interaction in there because you're just cataloging all day. They're cataloging all day. They're buried into this, like, you know, climate-controlled space. And then when the floodgates open, it's just amazing the amount of stuff they pulled out. Like, at Cardia, they were even pulling out old, like, 70s car ads that they had because as a kid growing up, I'd always look at car ads. And they did... Cartier did all these special edition cars with like Lincoln Continental and stuff. Mm-hmm. It was like the Cartier edition. And they pulled out everything. Sunglasses, lighter. I mean, it was just incredible. It was so much fun. I still don't know where that place is, but it was epic. Like that was very cool. So uh, did you, you had mentioned that you, uh, I mean, because you talked to Rolex and Tudor, correct? Yeah. To, Rolex was a really hard egg to crack because they're, I think... They're the, they're the most guarded. Right. And they immediately said to me, listen, Matt, we love you, but no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> and I, I think we talked about how much I hate the word no. I hate no so much. I hate it. But I was going through a Rolex magazine, and they had a watch that they were, there was an article that was owned by this navigator called Chichester, and they were talking about how it's in the archive. And a lot mm-hmm. of it was like, they didn't want you in the archive because they want they to keep all this stuff proprietary and, you know. Yeah. And I said, I got it. I sent an email. I said, I'm in Geneva. I saw that you have already published this watch. It's already out there. Could you just give me that one for the book? Like, I couldn't live with no. And they said, can you get to the archive in, in the next hour? And I was like, yeah, we can. And Steve and I raced over to Rolex. They let us in the archive. Of course, like all the bins with all the magical old stuff is behind us mm-hmm. and then they pull out this one watch and i said to the archivist again who's just a sweet generous wonderful woman i was like can we just look through that stuff and they're like no way and then this one perfect watch came out we were allowed to shoot it and uh i had a friend who was working at tutor mm-hmm. in the same building and i pick up the phone it was very american i pick up the phone i was like hey christoph um what's up and he's like why is this an internal line calling me i said well I'm in the building. And he's like, where in the building are you? I said, I'm on floor one. That's where the archive is. And he's right. like, 
how did you get into the archive? And I said, <laughs> I have no idea, but we're here. And then after that, um, he said, you know, come up and meet us. And then Tudor had a very accessible archive. Right. And they pulled out some really beautiful pieces that we were able to shoot there. It's just a much different philosophy. You know, Tudor, I think, handled itself as a kind of more maverick, younger brother of the brand. Um, but the generosity of that to, like, show up and pull out these watches, um, this one particular blue snowflake that was a, it was the trophy for the Swiss water polo team. They had it just sitting in the safe, and I was like, oh, we got to see that. I mean, just, I think the enthusiasm behind the participation, I think most brands definitely just want to say, yes, 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 but then they understand the protocol of it. Right. So, because you're not just asking to see it for yourself, you're asking no. to take a photo of it to put in a book. Right. <laughs> and you're asking to touch it and you're asking to, you know, not photograph it under their, you know, scrutiny. And, right. you know, we shot everything in a very, very specific way. And, um, yeah, there's a lot at risk. Like, they need to really trust you. And I think over the course of, you know, a few years, a couple of years working with these guys, I think there was trust. Yeah. And I think that worked for our advantage. Who was the hardest person to get for the book? I mean, because it sounds like you, it was almost anticlimactic considering you got Paul Newman's watch to begin. Well, there were some key icons that I wanted for the book. I really wanted Ralph Lauren in the book. Right. Because to me, he represented, mm, I guess, what watches mean in terms of style mm -hmm. and how we present ourselves in that world of style. And I like his style, and I like the brand deeply. And it's the greatest. And I wanted him. I wanted one of like they sent over a new piece at first, and I was like, no, not that. Like, where's the Jeep Willie version of this story? Like, where's the beginning of the car collection? Right. You right. Know, like where? And then he sent over this amazing Cartier with this gold cuff that he had bought at the Warhol auction. So this was Andy Warhol's watch. The cuff correct? was. This gold cuff, which okay. was connected to some other watch that he didn't even like, but he liked the gold cuff. So Ralph buys this amazing thing at the Warhol auction, hates the watch, but has this beautiful Cartier, and has the gold cuff welded to the Cartier, which to me is so Ralph. Like, yeah. <laughs> take, take something completely random, but equally as beautiful, and shape it and make it your own. Right. Like that to me embodied the essence of Ralph Lauren and his interview was so heartfelt and thoughtful. And again, I think this opens up the conversation with watches. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I, there were, there's a couple watches that slipped through the cracks and I won't, you know, throw salt in my own wounds, but one of them was, uh, I really, really wanted the Martin Luther King Timex that Martin Luther King wore. It's, according to his, you know, the records, like through most of his deepest, most intense um, negotiations in terms of civil rights and what right. that, how he kept track of time and what that meant to him in terms of time and his own time and his own limitations. And I thought that would be, and I love that it was a very modest, simple Timex. And there it was sitting in the Atlanta airport in like a Martin Luther King display. And we just couldn't manage to get it. But that's one I really, really wish we had for the book. Yeah. I mean, not, no, not many no's were said. You know, most people said yes. Yeah. But that one slipping through the fingers, mm, that was important. Ugh. But what are you going to do?
Yes, the holidays are coming, and if you're like me, you have no idea what to get that friend, family member, or special someone. Well, fear not. You're in luck. I recently discovered Canvas Pop. What's more perfect than your favorite photo printed on beautiful canvas ready to hang on your wall? Canvas Pop makes it easy to take that photo and turn it into the ultimate personalized gift. You can even turn Instagram and Facebook photos into gorgeous canvas art or into custom framed photo prints. Look, and Canvas Pop prints are made in America, hand stretched by an expert craftsman. Last but not least, all prints come with their 100% love guarantee and lifetime warranty. So if you're looking for a -a one-of-a-kind personalized gift for a loved one, or if you want to finally put something on your wall other than that lame Radiohead poster, check out Canvas Pop. Right now, they're giving all Blamo listeners 50% off with a minimum order of $100 with code BLAMO50 at checkout. So go to canvaspop.com and use the code BLAMO50 and start printing photos. It's it's really interesting, too, because in the book, you didn't just have Hallmark pieces. Like, I, I, no. I mean, when you... Because I, as soon as I saw it, I was like, "Oh, what is this?" And I, and I start reading through it all, and like some people, they list a book or they list a watch that is unattainable. This is one of one, and in most cases, a lot of these were, but it was one of one because it was like platinum diamond encrusted with a piece of the moon inside. Right. And you had things like, yeah, Winnie the Pooh watch, you know. And the the Ralph Lauren thing is still mind blowing to me because it was perfect in itself that it was Andy Warhol's. <laughs> Right. It's just but, dismantled. But he had to make it his he had to make it Ralph Lauren's. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, I think what's interesting about all the watches in the book is they all were the most important in terms of intrinsic emotional value to all of the owners. I think everyone in the book the one overarching consistent thing was if they lost this watch, I don't care if it was Adam Cronotis's Casio F7 or Stallone's gold sub. If this watch was lost, they would be devastated. Yeah. There's much more valuable, much more desirable watches in the collection. But if these were gone, if this was gone, I would just be devastated. And I feel the same way about the, you know, the Submariner that my, uh, sorry, the Datejust that my father left me. Is that the one you're wearing? That's the one I'm wearing now. It's a very simple, stainless, black-dialed Datejust that he gave me, uh, was left to me when he passed away. I mean, I have more valuable, more desirable watches, but this one would devastate me if it wasn't in my life. Yeah. Because of the connections we make with these things. Like, the, you know, you often, there was a lot of dad stories, right? A lot right. of dad stories, a lot of grandfather, grandfather stories, a lot of heirloom stories, but that about, like, the connective tissue that happens when a watch is handed to a son or a watch is handed down from a grandfather. And that could be like Aaron Sigmund's grandfather's bar mitzvah watch, you know, like mm-hmm. it's just, it has some power. And that was the kind of that fraternity of that power in terms of men and their relationships a lot of the time with their fathers, I thought was very interesting. Yeah. It's, it's good that you kind of get more into almost like the psychoanalytics of that because I don't know why that, for some reason, even in this digital age, it for a watch in most cases to uh, a man is the most important thing. Um, I, I just it's something I can never put my finger on because even now, you know, I, I have a handful of watches. I have my dad's old Elgin. It's busted. It's such like I love my dad so much. It's such a crappy watch. There's nothing yeah. really special about it, but it was just that he wore it. And it's, it's also funny because he wore it, um, 
it's just hard to explain on an audio podcast, but on the, the strap, in most cases, the, uh, the shorter strap is at the top of a weather strap. Right. He always had it inversed. I don't know why it might have even been an accident, but that was how he did it. And a lot of times on leather straps on my watches, I'll do it exactly like my dad does. Well, you make those connections of, I mean, I, I would hope in this case of people that you admire. Right. right. And style and you know, you take your style notes from that as well. Yeah. You know, um, I just feel that there is, um, I mean, I have a daughter. She'll end up with all these watches eventually. And she could write a book about a daughter and her watch. Right. And her father's watch. But like even with Clea, you know, she said, listen, my father wore this watch every single day. He, it's a tool watch. He wasn't interested in the value of it. This mm-hmm. is Paul Newman's. Yeah. He, and she said, I wear it every day. If I'm digging in the garden, I'm at the office, I'm in the back of a horse. This watch is on my wrist because that was important to pop, quote. And, Jeez. you know, I still get chills when I hear that story. And, you know... Again, that would again if this that watch got on the market, who knows what kind of money it would fetch here? But it, it, there's it will never be sold. It, it will. It's too important to sell. Yeah, right. It's just um, that was the constant theme, you know. For, uh, Henry uh, Henry Lutweiler, who's a photographer, has this one quote. It's like he has his a cosmograph that was purchased after his father died, and a, another beautiful gold bubble back that was a gift from an uncle. And he said, I will never sell these watches. If I have no money, I'll eat less, get thinner, work harder, find a way, but I will never sell these watches. Like, <laughs> that's a pretty powerful statement, to, you know, considering one of these watches is at least worth 65000 bucks. You know, like, I think that is the strength of the object. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, not to uh, make fun of myself here, there, I had a... A bit of a financial issue at one point in my life. Some personal stuff came up. Things got pretty bad. And I had this white gold day date. And I had to get rid of it. Um, it's fine. But I, I had to get rid of it. And I got cash for it in 12 hours. 12 right. hours. I, I remember reading this great <laughs> article. And I think it was in National Geographic. Um, and it was an interview with um, a war zone photographer. Okay. And at the end, it was like 10 questions of what are your top 10 travel tips? And somewhere in the top three was travel with a watch of recognizable note for critical border crossings, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, you're like, you're like, or a Halifax, like, mm, I got to get through the Czechoslovakian border. Like, everyone recognizes, like, Paddock, Rolex, yeah. you know, every, you know, and, he, and he, that's what he would do. And I think he was saying he had to give up at least three date just just to get kind of like get out of places so it's interesting in terms of like you know that currency right and that recognizable currency of what it is yeah i guess there's though that's always the fantasy in the back of my mind too like oh if the, you know the shit hits the fan we'll just sell all these watches and by the, the reality is i i hate selling watches <laughs> i get oh it was horrible i did not want to do it but i in this case i had zero choice really right but it's nice to know. I'd rather wear, you know, wear those investments quote, yeah, and have them in my life every day rather than sitting in some ridiculous IRA that I don't know. I'm not a big I'm not a very smart investor, but I have made some good decisions with watches. There you go. But it's also about you just want to have around you the stuff that you like. Mhm. Right? And yeah. um I feel the same way about collecting art or photography or whatever. Um I just I buy these things because I love having them in my life. Right. Just nice things to have 
and they're easier to store than cars. And I don't know. I look at my watches every single day with frequency on my wrist, often not even to check the time, just look at them. Yeah. I mean, it is a little beautiful mechanical work of art on your wrist. Right. You, you know, you don't really do that. Sure, you could always just tell time on the iPhone, but it's nice to look at these things. It's, you know? it's funny you mention iPhone, because I did want to ask you about this. This is completely unrelated to your book, but related in the sense that there are people now who are choosing smartwatches mm. over, over, say, a luxury watch. And I think, to, to backpedal a hair, um, a friend of mine who is in, uh, in charge of a very large watch company was talking about how right now um, watches that are in the you know, 3,000 and less area, they're, they're having a little bit of a trouble. But watches that are over 10,000, they can't keep in stock. So it's like there's this weird resurgence of new money, but Crazy. the less, the, the lower part, people are going to smartwatches. And that seems kind of weird. I mean, I have an Apple Watch, and I'll wear it when I work out, but I've worn it other times, and I look down, and, I, and this is no shot to anyone else, but I just feel like a clown. I do not like it. I have an Apple Watch, okay. and I've used it for the same reason. <laughs> and I, you know, to work out on, you're like, right. oh, heart rate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the reality for me personally okay. with smartwatches. I hate charging stuff. Oh, okay. I am a delinquent charger. Yeah. It, so it just, it's worthless with me. Like, I often don't use the iWatch because I'm like, oh, I forgot to charge the damn watch. <laughs> you know, it, it, that's why smart things for me are not reliable. Right. right. You know, the, this mechanical watch. And in, in this case, this Datejust, which is automatic, I don't even have to want, I don't have to think about it. Yeah. Um, it's just so reliable yeah. um, for me because I don't have to think about it. I don't have to worry about it. I mean, I do have an Omega Speedmaster that I have to wind. But again, I love the ritual of that. Yeah. Like you kind of wake up and you're like, I'm going to wind the watch. And you don't have to plug it in. It's easier to wind than to you plug. You don't have to <laughs> plug this stuff in. <laughs> um, of course, I'm a slave to the iPhone as a tool. And I think it's amazing. Right. And I, I very, you know, I'll check the time against my other watches if they're working correctly against the iPhone. But I'm not a smartwatch guy. Yeah. Like, I'm not like a Fitbit guy. Like, it's just, it doesn't fit in. I don't need to follow my sleep patterns. I, I don't, it's just not part of my world. Yeah. You know, I, I think a luxury is when looms work on a watch and you could see it in the middle of the night. Right. Without, you know, turning on your iPhone. Right. But um, I don't know. I think they're, they're, they have a purpose in the world, but. They just, they don't fit into my watch head. No, I think that's good. And that's a, that's a good response too from other people in which they'll be like, well, you know, I wear an Apple watch on the other wrist. And it's like, I've uh... seen that too. I see cops like that sometimes, yeah. you know, like a, like a G-Shock and then an Apple watch and they're like getting emails. I mean, I guess that's fine if you're going to use it as a, that kind of tool watch. It's just not, it's just not for me. No. Yeah. I mean, I think in, in those cases, I hope they're doing it because they don't have a choice. But when I see people that are doing that, like, there's two people that I know, well, that I don't know them, but I know of the fact that these, that they wore two watches. And that's, you had Fidel Castro, I think. Then you had, well, Che Guevara. Yeah. Uh, actually, no, it's Che Guevara and um, Maradona, the soccer player, Argentinian soccer player. And why did he wear two watches? I think he had it because he had, he always wanted to know what time it was at home, but he wore two GMTs. I know you, someone's going like, to tweet at me to correct this. That's like three times, like six time zones. He <laughs> yeah. could have like up. But like, I think that was his thing is like he always wanted to know what time it was at home. And, 
And maybe like with Castro's or something like that, they just wanted to, I don't know, he just wanted to flex. But I, I, was, in, I was in Havana um, working on a story just before the summer. And um, I was with a friend of mine who's Cuban, and he knows how obsessed I am about watches. And he said, do you want to see the, the, the Rolex store? There's a Rolex store? Yeah. After the re- revolution. Okay. Because um, Fidel had a GMT. Yeah. Rolex GMT. Um, after the revolution, of course, every single Western business was kicked out except Rolex. What? And you go to basically the, it's moved, I think it probably moved at some point off the main square, but it was a beautiful shop. But you go to like a housing complex and you go to like floor three and the doors open up on the old Rolex shop with all the old Rolex posters and like a couple weird old couches. And there's the guy, he's probably in his 70s now, late 70s, early 80s, who did all the Rolex repairs in Havana and he's still there repairing watches. What? And of course I was like, you have any old Submariners? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and you're like, no, we don't have anything here. But that's the power of the brand, you know? It's so cool. Yeah. Fidel loved Bordeaux wines and Rolex watches, you know, Viva la Revo- Revolution. You know? Yeah, <laughs> it's really, really nice, small things. Um, so we're starting to wrap up here, and I, I just wanted to ask, um, what other stuff are you going to do for this book in terms are you, are you going to, is the goal to keep making these books? I mean, because the one thing that's great is there's no shortage of incredible people out there that are wearing uh, watches. You know, I think the failings of the, of this book being published was we just were coming up to speed. And then my publisher, my publisher was like, no more stories, like (laughs) no more. So I do think that these stories can live, of course, in the digital space. And I Mm -hmm. love the idea of curating those things. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think this whole a man and his dot, dot, dot yeah. is something that I've become a little bit obsessed with. Like, what's, what's the, you know, there's a lot of crossover, right? Right. I mean, man is, man is neckties, man is eyeglasses, whatever that is. But there's a lot of, um, I think, stories to be told based on why people collect stuff. And I'm interested in that, again, that emotional connective tissue of why we do this as men. What, why is this important to us? And why do we fetishize and, and, and spend all this time and devotion to these objects? And I think, you know, it spans all social demographics and celebrity and otherwise. And, Very true. You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And, but I'm, I'm interested in those stories. I think those stories are fun to read. and. Uh, they give you a little bit of insight on who these people are that maybe you didn't know before. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a great equalizer too, because, um, you know, it's, it's not the, the, the whole Warhol effect and the fact that he would say that Coca-Cola, you know, rich people drink Coke and poor people drink Coke. Therefore, like we're all equal through Coke. Right. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. um, I mean, in a way with watches, like you can find a way to get a nice watch and you can also, and nice doesn't have to mean, $5,000 Rolex. Yeah. It can be, you know, there's awesome Timexes right now. There's, you know, like Michael Hill of Drake's uh, often wears a swatch that is bright orange just yeah. because of how it looks in his outfit. I mean, you can still do that. I, I would think most of the people that I spoke to in the watch had, uh, in the watch book, had some plastic watch. Right. And then they had, you know, like swatch G-Shock. You know, they, they love that. You know, they love the relationship between high and low and the practicality and the function of stuff. 
Actually, one of my favorite stories in the book is on a Timex Indiglo, which was owned by this guy, Dimitri, who's the maitre d' at the Tower Bar in LA, who's this great, he's from some Stan country somewhere. Can you, you know? give a, a quick explanation of what the Tower Bar in LA the is? The Tower Bar is this incredibly elegant, old school, clubby feeling interior bar restaurant in the Sunset, Howard, uh, Sunset Tower Hotel um, on Sunset Boulevard, which is this beautiful deco building. And there's just a level of glamour and old school Hollywood there that I love. Like you could be sitting next to Tom Ford or some kind of crotchety old like Hollywood mogul type, right? With, like his sixth wife, you know, <laughs> you know, stretched to her, you know, stretch her face stretched to the nth degree. But it's a very elegant, beautiful place. And there's a guy, Dimitri, who is the keeper of the gate, and he's just very cool, and he has a very soft voice, and he talks like this, and he's very, but he is a very elegant guy. And he always wear, I've only known him wearing this Timex Indiglo. And I said, what's the deal with that watch, Dimitri? And he said, well, um, one day um, I couldn't tell the time because it was so, tar- so dark. And Bill Murray was here and asked me the time. And I couldn't tell because, you know, the restaurant is so dark. And so Bill Murray takes the watch off his wrist and says, and takes Dimitri's, which was a watch of substance and note. Right. And drops it in his pocket and he hands Dimitri the Timex. And he says... Now here's a watch you could use in this place. Yeah. And then Dimitri has this great line and where he says, randomly, sometimes if Bill Murray's in the hotel, he'll call down to the restaurant and ask for Dimitri and say, hey, Dimitri, it's Bill. <laughs> what time is it? <laughs> and Dimitri always tells him the time because he knows he could see it. And then Dimitri says at the end, it's not that, it's a, you know, it's not that this is a valuable watch. But it's valuable to me because my friend Bill gave it to me. And I just love that line. Yeah. And I, you know, and it, to me, that's such the perfect Bill Murray story. Like, kick that crappy watch off your wrist here. Something practical. That's you know? so great, too, that Bill Murray is w- walking around wearing a Timex and a glow. Of, of course. They don't care. He doesn't give a shit. <laughs> um, but I think that, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I just loved doing this book so we'll see what the next level is well this is awesome um so we're we're just going to wrap up any other stuff you want to add or mention or plug william brown project blog and brand itself is pretty dope thank you very much uh for that i think um you know my instagram is uh at wm brown project if you like negronis and um airport lounges you probably yeah we'll have to talk negronis another time because i know that you are the negroni aficionado that that is um a, a a drink of favor. Uh, and then I, I don't know if people read blogs anymore, but I fired up the blog that started it all for me personally, which was um, the William Brown Project. And I'm slowly kind of bringing, again, residual content of stuff that I've run across that I just, I personally think is interesting. Right. And if, I don't know, if 10 other guys think it's interesting, that's fine with me. Yeah. Well, uh, I think as long as you're the guy behind it, I think we'll be in good hands. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. For sure. Thanks this a lot. Fun. Thanks, dude. See ya. You've been listening to Blamo. If you like this episode, there's plenty more to dive into at blamopod.com. Listen to Blamo on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, leave a review. It helps let others know and discover the show. You can find me elsewhere on the web on Instagram and Facebook at Blamo Podcast, or send me an email at jeremy at blamopod.com. Yes, and if you haven't figured it out by now, there is new music. That is from my favorite band, Tan Lines, and Jesse and those guys were super cool to give me a song. 
And now you're not going to hear those loud horns anymore. Isn't that great? I'm dead serious. I'm so happy to have this better music. All right, there will not be a new episode next week. It's Thanksgiving. All right, just letting you know, and we'll see you in two weeks. Later.